Hi, I'm Callie. And I'm Rachel. And we are Pelvic Service Announcement. Rachel is literally about to explode. Her joy, her excitement is overflowing in this episode. She is vibrating in her seat, <laughs> like, like shaking. <laughs> Okay, so we talked a little bit. We really held ourselves back when we did our episode on testosterone. One of the things that we kept seeing over and over and over again, especially when looking up, you know, testosterone in women, what does it do? What do imbalances of testosterone in women look like? And we kept finding so much information on polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And when I tell you, I have become obsessed with researching this for the last three weeks. I have seven pages of notes on this topic. Normally I have like three. Like at max, I think I've only had three. I have seven. We share an office. (laughs) The only thing I have heard about in the last week is PCOS and the Arnold. The Arnold is this weekend, guys. That is all she has taught. It's been great. I asked her, I was like, oh... Really, this weekend, I was hoping me and you could go camping in the canyon, just like really unplug, like a little retreat, a little PSA retreat. She said no, so. Like, now you want to hang out. Imagine the content from. (laughs) She just hit record and just (laughs) post whatever happens, whatever happens. But no, seriously, researching PCOS was fascinating. Yes. Fascinating. Just what we know about it, what we don't know about it how we treat it and just everything 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 everything. so what in the world is pcos um that's a great question that's a fantastic question (laughs) we don't really have a good definition i I was like panicking because rachel kept talking about how excited she was and we've talked about we discuss like a direction but we don't sit there and like okay if you talk about this i tell we don't script we don't really plan so rachel's just having the time of her life researching (laughs) this and all i'm finding i'm like there is no consistency it's all which tells you all you need to know about our personalities by the way i'm like there's no true definition there's no concrete and like nobody agrees and rachel's like there's all this information it's so great over here with seven pages Yeah, so the, the the best the medical community can come up with, th- there's a set of criteria or guidelines that Rachel's going to talk about, but basically the best they can come up with is just it's really a set of symptoms. Yes. We know it's related to some hormone imbalance. It affects women and girls of reproductive age, and they usually have two of the three at least these conditions. An absence of ovulation, which can lead to irregular menstrual periods or no periods of all, or of all, no periods at all, high levels of androgens or signs of high androgens, such as excessive body or facial hair, and then abnormal growths on one or both ovaries. So Originally, they thought these growths were fluid-filled sacs called cysts. However, what the evidence now, like more recent things that have come out, says that it's growths from the ovarian follicles, 
not developing. Yeah, so this is called the Rotterdam Criteria. And so in 2003, the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology, in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, met in Rotterdam in the Netherlands to establish a diagnostic criteria. So um, typically with the presence of two or three, two or more of these kind of symptoms, presences in the body um, is enough for that diagnosis of PCOS. Um, And so there's, and there's even um, discontention and disagreement amongst, okay, how many cysts or how many follicles on the ovary qualifies as polycystic Um, typically right now like the actual official rotterdam criteria states that it is greater than or equal to 12 follicles within a two to nine millimeter diameter um, and or just an actual ovary volume of greater than 10 milliliters Um, and so actually recent studies have shown um, that Uh, those that do have PCOS actually have even higher numbers of those follicles. And so they really want to push that diagnostic threshold to greater than 25 follicles. So, um, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So it's not that these cysts or follicles are developing just randomly. These are, and when we say follicle, we mean like an egg is, is, is what that is. So, um, during the menstrual cycle, If you need a little refresher, you can go back to our episode that we did about it. But during the menstrual cycle, we release hormones and that hormone, some of those hormones kind of decide which follicle in which ovary is the best, the most mature, the most viable for a chance of turning into a baby. And so the body kind of says, okay, that one, that follicle starts developing. It starts expanding. It gets like more special nutrients, more special attention, and then it is released into the fallopian tube to hopefully become fertilized and so now what we're thinking is that rather than just these you know fluid filled sacs just kind of growing all willy-nilly on the ovaries it's actually a follicle that had just stopped developing for whatever reason that we have absolutely no answer for and so because of that now we have irregular periods we have you know troubles with with fertility and just a bazillion other things yeah pcos is actually the most common cause of anovulatory infertility which basically just means infertility because you're not ovulating you're not you're not producing that egg so then the egg can't be fertilized and then you can't have a baby 15 to 20 percent of infertile females have pcos that's a lot that's a lot that's a lot we can also see other problems besides infertility with PCOS we can see things like unwanted hair growth most likely re- most likely due to that androgen imbalance dark patches of skin acne weight gain irregular bleeding so a lot i mean there's a lot that can go into this women at P- with PCOS are also at higher risk for a- obstructive sleep apnea insulin resistance metabolic syndrome type 2 diabetes obesity heart disease mood disorder, and endometrial hyperplasia, which is just where the endometrium, that uterine lining becomes too thick, which then puts you at risk for endometrial cancer. So if that doesn't convince you that, hey, this is a problem we need to start addressing, I don't know what will. So there's, and I just, 
so many rabbit trails. So I got so into this. I literally Googled, I don't, I, so much, so, so much. Um, and so because, and so much of this is like, okay, what causes what chicken or the egg, which came first, did the high androgen levels cause, you know, these, these cysts, these follicles to stop developing or vice versa. And just so many different things, so many different things. So many women, Many females with PCOS do not have a lot of these symptoms, and many women with these symptoms do not have PCOS. And so it's just kind of one of those things where it's kind of a working definition, a working criteria, and but there is definitely a really big, a big risk, and there's a lot of other things to be concerned about. So like Kelly said, those with PCOS are at a higher risk for other health conditions, Insulin resistance. That was a big one I saw come up a lot. Huge, 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 huge. So with insulin resistance, insulin is a hormone that basically moves sugar or glucose from the blood into the cells to use as energy. We need sugar. We need glucose. Carbs are good. It is our body's main source of energy. However, we need insulin to kind of open the door to allow glucose into the cells so that we can actually use it. Um, And so with insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, cells don't really respond to insulin. And so glucose levels in the blood start to rise. As a result, the level of insulin also rises as the body produces more and more of it to try to lower those levels of glucose. So now we've got these high levels of insulin, but we also continue to have high levels of blood sugar because our body isn't using it. Um, And so too much glucose in the blood can lead to other disorders like metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. And too much insulin actually also increases the amount of androgens produced by the ovaries. So now we've got like this full circle cycle of, you know, this insulin resistance. Now we're producing too much insulin. Now our ovaries are producing more androgens. And then we just kind of continue this cycle. Um, And so ovulatory, what I did found that I thought was super interesting is that, um, ovulatory females with PCOS are actually less resistant to insulin than anovulatory females with PCOS. And so basically, if you do kind of still fit the criteria, you know, with the cysts and the high levels of androgens, but you're still ovulating, you're less insulin resistant than those females that are not ovulating which is wild to me. Like, yeah. what does that have to like, do with why? insulin resistance, you know? What about ovulation <laughs> increases your sensitivity to insulin? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what does that mean for women and girls that don't have their periods for whatever reason that are um, amenorrheic, right? You know, if, if they lose their period for whatever for whatever reason, for however length of time, what is that going to do to their insulin levels? What is that going to do to blood sugar? What is that going to, what impact is that going to have on the future? So what about like birth control? What impact does that have? These are all questions. Do you have some information? I do have some information about birth control. Let me see. I think it's on page six. About (laughs) birth control and insulin resistance. So with, where did it go? So birth control can't, with oral contraceptives, they do actually reduce androgens by 
a whole bunch of different mechanisms um, and they can help to make those cycles a little bit more regular. They can also help to clear acne, reduce that excessive hair growth. Um, didn't find a ton of information on what that does to insulin resistance, if that has any effect on it or not. So that would be interesting for the future, mm-hmm. for future research. So I wonder if it's like if that's a coincidence, what does the ovulation have to do with insulin resistance? That that's my question. Yeah. I'd love to see some research on that. So all of these are just conversations. But um, one of the ways in which you start to manage PCOS is trying to treat the insulin resistance. So there's a lot of approaches you can take to this depending on if there is some obesity involved, weight loss and nutrition can be huge exercise. And it says really behavioral modification should be the first line therapy for an overweight woman with PCOS. So now obviously if you're someone with super low BMI or whatever, you don't want to use weight loss as your first treatment. But if it's a modifiable factor, that would be a really, that's a really, really good place to start. That's where they like to start in treatment. Um, Where did it go? Their normalization of menstrual cycle and ovulation could occur with as little as a 5% weight reduction from the beginning weight. Yes. And so it is, um, obesity is present in 35 to 60% of those with PCOS. And so, and granted this is weight loss is only recommended for those that begin with a BMI greater than that 25 to 27. Um, that range is, um, just is like normal to overweight ish kind of kind of right mm-hmm. in there obesity would be anything like greater than was it 27 28 yeah, BMI. Into, yeah that and up into the 30s up into the 30s mm-hmm. yeah and so weight reduction is huge it improves the endocrine profile it increases the likelihood of ovulation and the likelihood of pregnancy which is a huge 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 consideration in those with pcos are we trying to get pregnant are we trying to avoid pregnancy what are those goals and a lot of treatment options actually depend on what your desires are to have to bear children yeah that's what I saw it's kind of because you can really kind of go two ways and we'll get into that but it's basically kind of fertility drugs or birth control is yeah kind of the the direction you can go with that um one of obviously behavioral modification is going to be first but then if we're further trying to increase that sensitivity to insulin a lot of times they'll use metformin which is actually a a drug they use to treat diabetes so metformin reduces circulating insulin and androgens so that just helps to restore normal ovulation in in some women with pcos the only problem is this has some side effects so you can get some gi irritation with that metformin a lot of people report diarrhea nausea things like that so that is why the first line treatment's not like oh i can just treat this with a pill well really ideally you do some behavioral modifications and if the pill if that metformin if that's what we decide to use to treat it with it would be combined with behavioral modifications and there's a lot of disagreement is it you know is 
you know, with metformin, is it because, you know, yes, we do see that increased menstrual cyclicity with the improved ovulation, reduction of circulating androgen levels. Is it because of that specific drug or is it due to the weight loss that occurs because of metformin? Um, Is it, you know, is it the reduction of insulin sensitivity? Um, But another cool thing that I've, that um, I found about metformin, metformin is that it also inhibits ovarian glucogenesis and thus reduces the ovarian androgen production. So, which is really cool. Um, and a little bit, we haven't really touched on this. So androgens are the male sex hormones. We kind of talked about this last week. Androgens are, um, testosterone and osterone, um, all of the, uh, all of the male sex hormones. And again, like we talked about last, last episode with testosterone, we do, females have levels of testosterone, males have levels of estrogen. So um, it's just an imbalance Mm -hmm. that we see with PCOS. Estrogen is actually derived from testosterone. Estrogen is created from testosterone. And so we need testosterone in order to have estrogen. And so for whatever reason that that happens again, we, we don't really know what, but that testosterone is just not being converted into estrogen effectively. And so that's why we have that buildup of those male hormones, those androgens in the system that cause all of these, all of, all All of the things, things. all of the things. And we don't know directly what causes, what exactly causes this PCOS, but they have found a pretty strong genetic component. So there's a strong genetic and a strong environmental component that contributes to the development of PCOS. We just don't know exactly what it is, but things like if you have a mom or a sister with PCOS and you have and you're obese or overweight, it drastically increases your chances. Yep. yep. So again, we've we've got you know we've got insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and high blood pressure, mood disorders, and obstructive sleep apnea. I don't know why, but this hung me up so bad. I was like, what do you mean? Why do my ovaries have anything to do with snoring? Was <laughs> it not just the, I assumed it was, had to do with the weight gain. Oh no, let oh, me tell you. Let's hear it. So obstructive sleep apnea is defined as a narrowing of the airway during sleep. And so this is, could possibly be due to more so the elevated levels of aldosterone, which is a derivative of testosterone. Aldosterone increases an overnight fluid shift, affecting the mass and function of upper airway muscles during sleep. So aldosterone is secreted by the adrenal cortex, the the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys, and it helps to regulate electrolyte and water balances just throughout the day. But at nighttime, there is a shift to the head and neck in supine, which can lead to some edema in the throat and upper airway obstruction blew my mind what blew my mind so this is called this was from an article called the role of aldosterone in osa obstructive sleep apnea and osa related hypertension um this was published in january of 2022 in the frontiers of endocrinology so yes could pot could definitely be due to the weight gain but also those higher levels of aldosterone and androgens have a significant impact on how those muscles function during sleep blew my mind that is wild blew my mind yeah, I'm glad you looked into that because I would have just 
been like, oh, okay. I, I would, yeah, I, no, didn't, I, I was I, 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 so hung up on that. I don't know why. I was like, like, what do why? you mean obstructive like, sleep apnea? Explain it to me. <laughs> I need answers. Wow. So yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, and mood disorders, you know, depression and anxiety, as well as binge eating are also super common in those with PCOS. Um, and again, I think that this is mainly due to those abnormal levels of androgens that are causing these, these mood disorders. And it is even greater among those with PCOS who are also obese. Um, and so, yes, this can take like we've already, we're only like 15 minutes in and we've already covered significant health complications that are related to PCOS. And so that is definitely going to take its toll mentally. Like this, this is a lot. This is a lot. So are you ready to get into treatment? Yes. Okay. So I kind of started with just treatment for symptoms. So like, we're not trying to get pregnant at this point. We're just trying to treat the symptoms. We've already talked a little bit about it, but the first thing is just those lifestyle changes. So lower calorie diet, losing weight, and getting more physical activity. Rachel talked about the five. This is where I had a 5% weight loss can improve the symptoms. A recent study, um, an NICHD-funded study, found that a diet low in dairy and carbohydrates helped women with PCOS lose weight reduce excessive testosterone and improve insulin sensitivity. So this is where I think it would be, if you suspect that you have PCOS, I, my advice, something I I think would be very, very beneficial instead of just like, okay, like I'm going to try to lose some weight, talk to a healthcare provider. Maybe they can refer you to a nutritionist who specializes in this, but I would recommend getting some professional help in coming up with a nutrition plan to help you be successful in this because there's specific goals we're trying to meet here. And, and this can, and like, this looks different for everybody, you know, and I think, and this is an overarching truth for diet. If you try to stick to a very restrictive diet of foods that you do not like and do not enjoy, you're not going to stick with it. You're not, you're just not going to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so working with a provider that is trained and specialized to deal with some of these endocrine disorders can help a ton. Not only can they be like, okay, these foods specifically have been shown to increase X, Y, and Z and decrease this, but what else do you like to eat? What do you enjoy? Okay. You like chocolate. Okay, great. We're going to throw that in every now and then, you know, and that way they can work with you to a diet that you actually enjoy that will continue to improve your symptoms. So I thought that that was really interesting too. Um, even I found a lot of, um, support for the Mediterranean type diet to help with some PCOS symptoms. So that, again, that weight loss, it can restore ovulation. It's going to make menstrual cycles more normal and that all those can improve the chance of pregnancy, which we'll talk about that a little bit later. It also is going to lower your risk of diabetes. So we talked about Mm -hmm. PCOS puts you at risk for type two diabetes just because of the weight gain and things like that. And then for a lot of women, weight loss actually reduce the symptoms of excessive hair growth and acne yes and then rachel talked about the mental health implications while physical activity can reduce pcos related depression so 
talk to a professional, talk to your doctor about finding that nutritionist and then maybe talk to that nutritionist about, hey, what about an activity plan? Do you know a trainer? Do you know, I mean, there's all kinds of resources out there. So if this is something you've been diagnosed with, I highly recommend utilizing all the resources. Yes, 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 yes. One thing that I did find, and this is on the extreme end, is bariatric surgery. And so women with... um, with PCOS, when spontaneous weight loss cannot be achieved, surgical options are there. This study, hold on, let me find it. So I want to tell you. She's got a mountain of notes, y'all bear Bro. with her. She is so prepared. I have so many pages. I even highlighted the I article. Can, it's beautiful. Um, so this was, um, this was published in 2005 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology Metabolism. The only name in here that I can pronounce is Escobar. That's all I got. Everybody else, I'm so sorry. Uh, but basically, the title of this article is The Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Associated with Morbid Obesity May Resolve After Weight Loss Induced by Bariatric Surgery. And so they took 17 people with PCOS with a mean BMI of 50.7. 50.7. That is twice the normal BMI. So 50.7 following bariatric surgery resulted in an average weight loss of 41 kilograms or 90 pounds just after the surgery in 12 months. 12 months. That's all it took was for these people to lose an average of 100 pounds. And they found improvements in ovulation, insulin resistance, hyperandrogenism, and the hirsutism. So that hair growth all from this bariatric surgery. And again, this is only when that spontaneous weight loss cannot be achieved naturally or um, effectively. And so this is another good option. Yeah. I was fascinated. That is fascinating. Another big treatment option, especially for those who are not their goal is not to conceive is oral contraceptive, AKA birth control, the pill, whatever you want to call it. That's really kind of the primary treatment. It's going to make those menstrual periods more regular. It's going to help reduce the level of androgen produced by the ovaries, which is what causes all the symptoms. And then it helps clear acne and reduce the excessive hair growth. So this is not curative. None of these are really curative. It's to treat the symptoms. There's no quote unquote cure. It's kind of like endometriosis. Rachel and I were talking before we started recording about how it was kind of reminiscent of endometriosis. I mean, not exactly, but in that there's not really a cure. It's just kind of treating the symptoms at this point. But hopefully as research and things improve, eventually we understand it more and we have more of a cure. But oral contraceptive can be very, very effective in treating the symptoms, managing the symptoms. On the other hand, if you are trying to get pregnant, another source or another route um, to help with the treatment of PCOS is actually ovulation induction. So what can we do to get things going, to get that ovulation started? And ovulation or the lack of ovulation kind of relates to low follicle stimulating hormones um, on kind of that 
that hormone access. And in case you haven't realized with PCOS, all the hormones are out of whack. Everything is backwards. Things are high when they should be low. Things are low when they should be high. Um, and so because of this, we have high levels of luteinizing hormone and low levels of follicle stimulating hormone, um, which cause the actual release of the follicle. And so because that's backwards, that's kind of when we start to see this follicle that develops and develops and develops. And then all of a sudden it just stops and it doesn't actually get released. And then it just turns into this cyst that persists on the ovary. Metformin can actually induce ovulation. Um, And again, it's kind of, you know, again, is this due to the weight loss that is improving ovulation? Is, does it have some sort of hormone effect? You know, again, like we, like I mentioned before, it inhibits that ovarian glucogenesis and thus reduces ovarian androgen production. Is that why it works? We have no idea. We know that it works. That's all we got. Did you know that it's not approved by the FDA for treating PCOS related infertility? but it's one of the most common things so that's like kind of interesting because a lot of things I hear a lot of the things treatments more natural everyone's like oh it's not approved by the FDA and and I'm not encouraging you to just go find some drug off the street that's not approved but it's just interesting to me that that's one of the most common things used to treat it and it's not actually Approved. approved for the treatment yeah. of PCOS. Now, it is an FDA-approved drug. It, like, is, it, is, it is. It is, is absolutely yes. safe, but it is approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, yeah. um, not necessarily anything else. And I've seen a lot of things going on of like people that are just trying to get on, that don't have diabetes, that are wanting to take it just for weight loss. And it's just, and I've seen some people speak out about it and being like, no, like this is not what that is for. There are other ways to do this. Um, you know, I and they were basically saying, you know, like, I don't want to take it away from somebody that actually yeah. needs it. However, this research is showing that, you know what? Yes, maybe it should be FDA approved for the treatment of PCOS. And the implications that it has on the androgen access, the weight loss, the insulin sensitivity, the androgen production, all of those things are really promising for those with PCOS. The thing, like something that I started thinking about, and I've done no research. I have no idea the mechanism of action, but Ozempic is a new yeah. big one. That's a big weight loss. Well, it was originally created for type two diabetes yep. and it had these awesome weight loss results. So now all these like Hollywood celebrities are taking Ozempic and there's another one that's similar. Well, now these diabetics can't actually get the medicine that yeah. they need. And so I kind of wondered, I was like, I wonder what that would do for PCOS. Again, I have no idea if it works similar to metformin, what right. the mechanism mechanism of action is so don't this is just me throwing things out there but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Case in point, talk to your doctor. Yeah. Talk to your doctor. So like we said, metformin is absolutely an FDA approved drug. Um, It can be, and it's, that's actually super common is that we um, kind of using like one medication of, Hey, this is actually used to treat this, but we've also noticed that it's really, really good at treating this. Uh, It's how Viagra started. Uh, it was a blood pressure medication and all these dudes kept like, showing up with hey. bones. <laughs> yeah. By the way. My blood pressure pressure is lower. However. However. <laughs> We've oh. also got this situation going on. Um, and so it's, it's super common. I've even had it. Um, I told my doctor that, um, and I can't remember the name for it. it it's like, a, there's a name for it. I want to say it's like off shelf or something like that, where we use generic. Like, no, no um, um, it's, um, there's, there's like a name for when we use oh, one oh, medication oh, yes, yes, that's yes. approved to treat something else. And, and we use it to treat something else entirely. Um, I told my doctor I had a hard time sleeping and he prescribed me an antidepressant, which I thought was like kind of weird. I was like, 
but why? <laughs> like, I just said I can't fall asleep. What? Um, worked great. <laughs> worked fantastic and it was in like a lower dose and yeah. it was like cut in half kind of thing and even when I went to go pick it up from the pharmacy she's like I'm assuming this is for sleep because of the do- the dosage and I was like yes you get me um so it's it's super common it, yeah. it happens all the time all the time yeah. um and so it is definitely something that um that can be used is safe to use um uh, but again talk to your doctor talk to your doctor yeah so a lot of times metformin will be used in conjunction with a medication called clomiphene. Yes. Which is actually, it's a fertility drug. It's the most common treatment for infertility in women with PCOS. Yep. Um, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, recommends that clomiphene should be used as the primary medication for PCOS with infertility. So, yep. It is cheap it's straightforward has few adverse effects requires very little monitoring um it is basically a an estrogen receptor antagonist um and so basically it's going to kind of beat estrogen to the receptors and so the body is going to think that it has less estrogen than it actually does if that makes sense um and so which is going to kind of interfere with that negative feedback of that estrogen pathway which is going to increase the availability of follicle stimulating hormone which we need to stimulate said follicle to release so i thought that was super cool um, it leads to follicular growth, um, which then leads to that surge in luteinizing hormone and that ovulation. Um, and so this um, article is basically saying that uh, clomiphene is indicated in patients with PCOS and an ovulation with normal FSH levels, um, but it does have certain limitations in those patients with a BMI greater than 30. A fun little side effect, depending on your perspective, is women who are treated with clomiphene are more likely to have twins or triplets than women who get pregnant naturally just because of all the stimulation of the follicles and all the... We have potential to have more than one egg released, which means a potential for more than one egg to be fertilized. So you're a little bit more likely to have multiples. So, Yep. Um, And so something that I also found, the live birth rate following just six months of clomiphene ranged from 20% to 40%. And the majority of pregnancies occurred within the first six ovulatory cycles following the initiation of treatment so I thought that was super cool again it's cheap it's easy doesn't require a ton of monitoring um, so that is really really um, really exciting it does require a prescription um, it's not something that you can just get over the counter um, so it does require a prescription but is phenomenal fantastic option fantastic option um, another way to induce that ovulation, which I thought was super interesting and really tried to control myself here. Um, These are called aromatase inhibitors. So aromatase is an enzyme that converts those androgens into estrogens via aromatization. Very complicated pathway that I got down a rabbit hole and into so much biochemistry. And I was like, I don't even remember what half these words mean anymore. Um, Basically, we need aromatase to convert those androgens into estrogen. When I look up something and I start seeing chemical bonds and stuff, I'm like, I'm out. (laughs) And I'm done. Immediately, no. When I was looking at this, I found an article and I told Rachel, I was like, I'm not smart enough to read this. (laughs) 
it's like it it just was so heavy it took so much mental energy trying to get through and it was like talking about the chemical bonds and i was like oh this article explains pcos i was like oh in a complicated way that i was like way nobody over wants to hear this like dr sawyer would be interested in this right. our, our neuro <laughs> professor but that's nobody else that's about it so, so basically continue. what these aromatase inhibitors do is that they actually inhibit estrogen production which in my mind i was like wait a second isn't that what we want but what that does is it effectively increases gonadotropin releasing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone um, giving us this positive feedback loop within the pituitary and optimizing ovulation and so with the aroma Taste inhibitors, it's not necessarily that we're the mechanism and the point of using them is not to increase the conversion of androgens to estrogen, but more so to increase the production of gonadotropin releasing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, thereby reintroducing ovulation. So, when you were looking at that, did you see a drug called letrozole? Yes, I did. Okay. So, I thought this one was interesting because that's the mechanism it works by. And it actually was found to be more effective than clomiphene. But there were some studies in animals that showed it caused birth defects if it was used during pregnancy. However, there's not really studies of that drug in pregnant women that I found. So they're like kind of if that's why it hasn't been used in lieu of clomiphene. Um. So I didn't know what you had on that. Yes. So there was a pharmaceutical company in Switzerland that warned against the use of letrozole for ovulation induction owing to possible presence of teratogens, which increases malformations. Um, however, a comparison with clomiphene did not demonstrate increased rates of major or minor malformations. Okay. So yeah, using it kind Fine. of more so for the induction of ovulation. And then it's probably one of those things that, again, you'll have to work with your doctor and gynecologist and OB with. Um, probably one of those things that once that ovulation is restored and pregnancy is established, that drug is done. That drug is done. I do want to say, and we've said this before, we're going to, I'm going to go ahead and say this again, since we're talking about all of this, this is not medical advice. No, we are not telling you this is information. This is not medical advice. So just a mid episode reminder, reminder, we've said it before. This is not medical advice. If your doctor recommends something, you're not going to go tell your doctor. Well, the PSA girl said, I can't take that because it has birth defect. No, No, this is not medical advice. This is just information. We just want you to have the information. I'm going to go over all of the sources that I use that way. If you want to go look it up yourself, you can. This is just information. We did all the research that you don't have to. Basically basically is, is what we do here. We do all the research so you don't have to, and we present it to you in a way that hopefully is you know understandable because PCOS can be scary it can be really scary and we don't want you to think that there are no hope or or no options out there for you that's just what we're we're just going over the things what what does the research say what does you know what what does what does the internet say like I said we did the research so you don't have to the National Institute of Health has a lot of great information and yes I think when we post this episode we'll post a link yes because it's got good information and it's a reputable source and I got a lot of my information from there so we'll post that link and if you were recently been diagnosed with PCOS if you feel like you have PCOS this is a really good place to start and this is a really good place to get some questions to bring up to your doctor yes Yes, yes, yes. Okay. 
The other, another treatment I found was treating it with gonadotropins. Yes. Awesome. So these hormones can be given as shots and they're going to cause ovulation. However, this treatment is expensive. Yeah. And it has a higher risk of multiple pregnancies than um, clomiphene. So you're going to want to talk to your doctor about that. They may want to run a lot of lab tests, do ultrasounds exams to watch how your body responds. So just more risks and cost involved with this treatment, yeah. which is why it's not a first line defense. Glucocorticoids can also be introduced to help to stimulate ovulation. Um, but with glucocorticoids, there are definitely some um, potential adverse effects with prolonged use. Um, and so, again, this is this is with ovulation induction in regards to treatment of PCOS symptoms. This is to help with fertility. This is to help get pregnant, maintain that pregnancy. Um, and so again, with the glucocorticoids, this isn't something that we really want to use long-term, but it can help to elicit that ovulation. The last treatment I found, which sounds so aggressive, but we're going to go over it ovarian drilling yeah that kind of hurt me just to read but it's it's not as bad as it sounds so it's also called diathermy oh uh, that's, yeah laparoscopic ovarian diathermy that sounds better than ovarian drilling yes, yes it does. but basically the a surgeon and it has to be done by a surgeon is going to make a small cut in your abdomen and insert just a uh the laparoscope that Rachel talked about. And then they're going to use a needle with an electrical current to puncture and destroy a small part of the ovary. So what this does is it leads to lower androgen levels because we know the ovaries are partly responsible for producing those androgens and that can improve ovulation. This is actually less costly than treatment with gonadotropin, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, this is a surgery. Why is that cheaper than the gonadotropin injections? But it is for whatever reason. And it doesn't seem to increase the risk of multiple pregnancies. So there's that benefit. However, you do have a risk of scarring the ovaries. Mm -hmm. So take that for what it's worth. Um, but it has been shown to restore menstrual regularity in 63 to 85% of women. And the beneficial effects on reproductive outcomes seem to last for several years. So this is, you know, again, and this is, this is a surgery. This is, um, this is really kind of more like a last line of defense, you know, acceptable alternative kind of thing. Um, but it is associated with lower multiple gestation rates than those gonadotropins. Um, and there was no evidence of a difference in live birth rate and miscarriage rate in those with um, those that were not able to use clomiphene um, that underwent this laparoscopic ovarian diathermy versus gonadotropins. Diathermy just sounds so much better. So much more pleasant. Um, but we, tr we tried to kind of present these treatment options in order of least invasive to most invasive. So obviously diet, lifestyle modification, that's always going to be your best bet. You're not introducing a medication to your body. You're restoring your body to its natural state of health. And I would argue that no matter what treatment you go with or ends up, you, you always continue with the lifestyle modifications yes. that increase yes. activity healthy balanced diet everything like that 
and that would increase your chances of success for while using any of these treatments and then we kind of listed the medications in the order where it was most common most infective and then ending with the surgery if all of this fails for you and you were like i really want a baby i want to be pregnant none of this has worked there is another option and that is in vitro fertilization or IVF. So it's just a procedure where the sperm and an egg are placed in a dish outside of the body and fertilized. And then the doctor places the fertilized egg into the uterus. So this may offer women with PCOS the best chance at getting pregnant when all of these other things have failed. But again, um, you might have a risk of multiple births. There's more, you have more control of that. Obviously you can decide, you and your provider can decide how many eggs are implanted and things like that. The only downside is this can be extremely expensive and it's not always covered by healthcare insurance. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah. But there is options out there. Um, yeah, yeah. So last little bit that I had is just kind of some of the treatment of the more androgen related symptoms. Um, and so these are kind of some of those like external symptoms. So the hirsutism, I think I mentioned in the testosterone episode that we could do like a whole episode on hirsutism. I lied. I was thinking about something else. I don't know what I thought I was thinking of. Hirsutism is just excessive body hair. That's all it is. We could talk about that. We could do a whole episode. <laughs> Honestly, we could do a whole episode on just about anything. Honestly. Um, but basically, 70 to 80% of those with excess androgen demonstrate this hirsutism. Um, and this is um, basically because androgens increase the growth rate of hair. That is, you know, one of the, the male features, I guess is, is the word I'm looking for. Um, and so hair removal is, um, is definitely kind of a big, uh, treatment option for a lot of people. It's something that they just kind of want to get rid of, especially if it's on the face. Oral contraceptives can also help to reduce those andro- those circulating androgens. Um, there are anti-androgen drugs that exist out there glucocorticoids, insulin lowering agents, topical treatments, combination therapy. I mean, again, all, all of these different things kind of go into treating that the androgen related symptoms. Now, is this going to normalize androgen levels entirely? No, probably not, but we can at least address kind of some of those symptoms related to that imbalance. Um, in case you haven't noticed, that's kind of the running theme here mm-hmm. with PCOS. Um, not a ton of oh we'll just take this drug and it's going to clear up everything because we don't know what causes it we don't we don't know what happens we don't really know again chicken or the egg which came first uh, that that causes all of these symptoms and all of these all of these complications we have no idea we have no idea so our treatment looks a lot like treating the symptoms rather than treating the underlying dysfunction because we don't know what the underlying dysfunction is we don't know what that cause is so I think the good news is there are a lot of treatment options out there and there's a lot of things you can do in terms of your health and managing your health. So I think that is extremely empowering to know, okay, I can take some of this into my hands and there's research to back up that these things have been successful in at least reducing or managing the symptoms. So you ready for an alternative treatment to PCOS? Yes. Acupuncture. What? Yes. 
The benefit of acupuncture seems to have for PCOS sufferers is in helping them regulate and manage their periods. However, it has also been shown to aid in weight loss and reducing headaches, as well as improving patients' moods and outlooks. Those with PCOS have needles placed along the acupuncture meridians related to the reproductive system. This will help stimulate the organs, improve blood flow to the area, contribute to normalizing hormone levels, and promote the proper functioning of the reproductive system. In 2000, a study was carried out by researchers at a university in Sweden, whose name I cannot pronounce, involving 24 women with PCOS who received acupuncture for two to three months. At the end of the study, 38% had regular ovulation. 38%. Um, those with more severe PCOS cases, um, particularly those who had high testosterone and insulin levels and were obese, did not show improvements in acupuncture or with acupuncture. Um, but even the addition of electroacupuncture in treating uh, those with PCOS have been shown to kind of prove the efficacy. So. Western medicine is wild. There is something to it. I don't know. And acupuncture is one of those things. The research is like, it seems to work. It works. We don't know why. We don't know why, but it works. They're like, yeah, let me just find these meridians and open up your chi and it's going to be a good time and it's working. And here we go. So pelvic floor physical therapists cannot perform acupuncture so you're gonna have to find an acupuncturist that is we can dry needle we cannot acupuncture a little bit different a little bit different but that is fascinating isn't that crazy that so if you're someone who's anti-medication there's another thing to try yeah in combination with lifestyle one thing that i found was super interesting throughout all of my seven pages of research in the 12 articles is that number one it's not painful like that was like one thing that I, I found like time and time again is that PCOS typically is not painful. There isn't an increase in pain associated with menstrual cycles if and when they do happen. Um, they're not incredibly painful. There's not a lot of like abdominal cramping or abdominal pain that was consistent across symptoms, which I thought was really interesting because I'm thinking, okay, you know, just the name itself, polycystic ovary syndrome, like that sounds terrible. Like that sounds painful. <laughs> but no, it really, really wasn't any kind of underlying pain, which mm-hmm. I thought, which I thought was interesting. Um, another thing I thought was kind of cool is that, or I don't know, maybe cool, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but that surgery to actually remove the cysts and remove those follicles was nowhere to be found. I, yeah, I didn't find that either. Nowhere to be found. I didn't find that in treatment options. I didn't find that in past research. I didn't find it in old research. So I don't know if it's something, I mean, that, kind of makes sense to me like let's okay let's remove the cysts let's get those out um but that I thought that was interesting as well that it wasn't kind of like I don't know right there interesting is that all you had no oh sorry continue then. I have so many more okay continue so okay sorry. I, sh- I shouldn't say so many more um Some other rabbit holes that I went down, which I kind of already mentioned, Mediterranean diet that eliminates the saturated fats and processed meats um, can help to reduce a lot of inflammation. Um, One thing that I thought kind of like in my head as I was going through everything, I was like, okay, this is kind of starting to sound a lot like Cushing's disease. 
So Cushing's disease is basically a hypercorticalism. Basically, the body makes way too much cortisol from the adrenal glands. Um, However, it can also be caused by steroid use. Now, symptoms include amenorrhea, hirsutism, acne, and obesity sound familiar. However, it does also include what's called the moon face, which is basically just a lot of swelling in the face, um, a buffalo hump, which is basically an increase in adipose tissue around the neck and the head, abdominal striae or stretch marks, and muscle wasting. And so those th- there are a lot of similar presentation patterns with Cushing's and um, PCOS, but there are a lot of other symptoms as well associated with Cushing. So presentation may look similar, but the cause and treatment is completely different. Um, and this is actually diagnosed via a urine sample. Now, the last rabbit hole that I went down. Transgender considerations. Because I'm thinking, okay, chicken or the egg kind of thing. Is it an increase in androgens that causes the PCOS? If somebody is wanting to transition from female to male, is taking testosterone going to impact their symptoms? Is that going to make things worse? No, it does not. Taking testosterone has no effect on PCOS symptoms. It does not cause it. It does not exacerbate it. It has no effect on it whatsoever, which I find also fascinating because what does that mean for our symptoms? Like again, chicken or the egg, which came first. Um, But yes, so there were a a ton of studies have been done. You know, is it safe to continue taking tea while you are trying to transition? If you have been diagnosed with PCOS, if you are at a higher risk for PCOS, nope, you are totally safe. That is crazy. That, that does kind of, like you said, that chicken or the egg question. Yeah. What does that, what does that that imply for? So maybe that'll spark some further research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is so interesting. I love all your little rabbit trails. Thank you. What a good adventure they took us on. This was. So sources for this episode, just because I want to give everybody credit where credit is due, the National Institutes of Health or NIH.gov, they have a ton of information there. The CDC... Um, an article called polycystic ovary syndrome, the definition, etiology, diagnostics, and treatment. This was also by Escobar, the same dude that did um, the other bariatric surgery, still can't pronounce his name, um, in the Nature Reviews of Endocrinology. That was published in 2018. The American College, College, (laughs) the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology also has a ton of information And this article, Treatment Options for Polycystic Ovary Syndrome by Badaway and Elnishar. This one was published in 2011. So lots of sources, lots of information, a lot of things, a lot of things. The only other thing I had, it's a little nugget of information PCOS may also be referred to as Steen-Leventhal syndrome. Yes. I'd never heard it called that until I'm actually just like looking at it right now on the NIH. But I thought of that because one of our coworkers was like, are y'all going to talk about Steen-Leventhal syndrome when you talk about PCOS? And then she was like, oh, wait, is that the same thing? And she looked it up and it was the same thing. It was the same thing. I was like, I've never heard of that. But it's the same thing as PCOS. Yes. So if you hear someone talk about that, I think it may be an older way of referring to it. It was, um, 
Steen and Leventhal were uh, two physicians that had kind of discovered it, I guess, kind of quote unquote discovered it, um, that kind of had the original um, uh, implications and kind of criteria for diagnosis that that we've refined and probably will continue to refine um, in the future. Am I shocked that Rachel knew that? No. (laughs) Okay. Are you, are you now finished? I am now finished. Okay. I am okay. done. That's all I got. Okay. That's all I got. I am so glad to have gotten all of this out of my head because it has been like taking over my life for the last couple weeks. Now? Which I love. <laughs> but now we can focus on the Arnold, which is this weekend. <laughs> hey, Callie, did you know the Arnold is this weekend? I wish I would. I bet that's the 10th time she has told me <laughs> that the Arnold is this weekend. But I'm so happy. I love Was that for. I. Can I. I remember the first <laughs> the first time you watched the Arnold. I had no interest. And I remember you were so excited. I was like, I need to be Kelly, sure look. to ask her about this on Monday. Like, ask her how it went, who won, <laughs> when she shows me pictures of these, like, bolder humans. Like, and now I'm actually, like, I'm like, oh, that is actually really cool. But I was like, oh, wow. That is so, like, neat. And every time she, oh, that's so cool. Because I have nothing, like, I know nothing about it. I didn't even, I'm like, what is the Arnold in my Google search history? But now I'm like, okay, I know what it is. I know to act excited. I am excited to hear about, I'm excited to see your, you. your Instagram stories. I'm very <laughs> excited. So the Arnold is, like, one of the biggest bodybuilding competitions in like the world um they have the one in columbus in ohio is the one in the united states they have them in like the uk they have them in a couple other countries but the one here in the states is the biggest um and yes it is after after arnold schwarzenegger it is his competition but they also do like um they do like powerlifting. they do like strongman uh, competitions they do and then a whole bunch of other random things like arm wrestling and slap fighting and yeah it's interesting but it's I mainly care about the bodybuilders so and that's this weekend <laughs> so now I can focus all of my energy on that because oh this has taken over my life taken over oh taken gosh. over okay <sighs> I have something super fun for our question of the week I have a case study yes let's have it so This is a little bit long. I will repeat the question. I will not repeat the case study. So if you need to hear it again at the end, I'll like pause and say, okay, now you can go. And so we'll do it that way. Okay. The scenario is set the scene. You have a 46 year old female with a stage two prolapse. So a 46 year old female is referred to you by her physician with a diagnosis of stage two prolapse. The patient has been fit and instruction, instructed in the use of a pessary. While taking the patient's history, she identifies her chief complaints as the inability to wear her jeans due to pressure down there, worsening symptoms with lifting heavy items when shopping, and difficulty with emptying bowels and bladder. She reports that she has a rigorous schedule and little time for appointments. She also does not have a strong desire to exercise. The patient's medical history includes vascular headache symptoms and two vaginal births. The largest baby weighed 10 pounds and 12 ounces. She is 5 feet 9 inches tall and has a BMI of 31.0 and carries weight around her abdomen. She has high blood pressure that is poorly controlled with medications and high cholesterol. 
Her surgical history includes gastric bypass that resulted in severe gastroesophageal reflux or GERD, a bladder sling 12 years ago, and a total hysterectomy four years ago. The patient has a smoking history of 22 years, one pack a day. She has a hearty dry cough. Using the visual analog scale, the VAS scale, she reports dyspareunia, pain 3 out of 10. She has a history of bladder hesitancy, slow stream, and straining to void. Her Bristol stool scale is typically type 1, and she reports having the strain and splint for all bowel movements and frequently has the sensation of incomplete bowel evacuation. On examination, you note that she sits and stands with a posteriorly tilted pelvis, decreased lumbar curve, increased thoracic kyphosis, head forward and rounded shoulders, and a significant bilateral genuvalgum. We're almost done. She is unable to complete the six-minute walk test. She has an apical breathing pattern that quickly turns shallow and rapid with any exertion. She has a normal lower extremity myotomal and dermatomal testing, pitting edema in both ankles, and a positive diastasis recti of four fingers at the umbilicus. On inspection, you note she has several active hemorrhoids around the external anal sphincter and a gap, gapping introidal opening. On instruction to lift her pelvic floor, you note significant accessory muscle use and minimal cephalic movement of the pelvic floor. With instruction to bear down, she has paradoxical pelvic floor contraction. In supine, her pelvic floor contraction strength is 1 out of 5. So that was a lot. If anyone needs to, go back, take this time, pause, rewind. Write it down if you need to. And, and go through that again and reread it. And yes, you will get questions like this on the board exam. And yes, you will see patients like this in the clinic. Oh, yeah. That's why I love this. As a student, I would have been, I would have honestly probably thought, because I was, I just not, I was like, nobody's that unhealthy. I can think some of, of our, six off the top of my I head. Say, <laughs> my caseload I right have now. some people in my, I have this exact patient in my caseload times four, five, six. Yeah. yeah. So this is not an outrageous, this is pretty common. This is what you'll see that whole, I'm too busy to exercise, things like that. What's the question? So the question is based on, there's a couple and we may do a couple because that was long and we want to get the most bang for our buck. Based on the patient's subjective complaints and objective findings, what would you expect her urodynamic test to demonstrate? Post or decreased post-residual volume, increased post-residual volume, normal post-residual volume, or no residual volume. So I'll read that again. Based on the patient's subjective complaints and objective findings, you would expect her urodynamic test to demonstrate decreased post-residual volume, increased post-residual volume, normal post-residual volume, or no residual volume. And I love this because you had to know so many things. Number one, you had to listen to like what she talked about. What did she say about her urine? And if you remember, she talked about that slow stream, that hesitancy to void, things like that. Well, then you have to know what a urodynamic test is. And that is the test. It's literally the flow from the bladder to out of the body, to the urethra and out of the body. So what is it actually looking like when she's voiding? So the answer is... B, increased post-residual volume. 
Rachel and I had an episode about prolapse and Rachel had a really good example about the water balloon and how when it, there's no prolapse, how that bladder sits up. But with prolapse, we get that bladder kind of sinking down. And so it makes it more difficult to avoid that urine, which can lead to increased post-residual volume, meaning there's more bladder, le- more bladder, more urine left in the bladder after that void. Yeah. And really in that question, and I know that there are like multiple questions associated with that case study, there were really like, honestly, you could have answered that question just based off of the first like two sentences. Mm-hmm. She says that she's got a prolapse and she feels incomplete emptying. That's all you needed to know. Yeah. That really truly. And so and so you've also got to know what that post residual volume is. What is that? What does it mean if you have a decreased residual volume? What does it mean if you have an increased residual volume? Um, We kind of talked about this before, but you can never pee all the pee out of your bladder. It's normal to have some volume of urine left over in the bladder. Well, she's already saying that she doesn't feel like she empties all the way. She has a history of a prolapse. She's had a bladder sling already. She feels that pressure and heaviness throughout the day. And so, and again, when you've got that prolapse, gravity is going to pull that urine in the back of the bladder because it's tilted to downwards and that urine is not going to be over the urethra it's not going to be over the water balloon spout to get out so you're going to have an increased residual volume yep i thought that was fun um if you're a pt student and you have questions about treatment for this case if you want to write up some treatment ideas or like feel free to write those in and submit those to us and we'll talk about those yeah so if you want to just use this as, hey, I'm interested in pelvic floor, write up some questions you have for us, write up, this is where I would start with treatment. This is where I would yeah. go with treatment. Uh, I think this could be a really like fun exercise if any of you guys want to do that. Yeah. So that'd be super just because I thought it was a really good case and it was very realistic. Very. So. Yeah. And the PT that took this subjective and did this exam did a great job. Very thorough. That was very thorough. I wish I had time to do all, all of, that of that in 45 <laughs> minutes. I swear sometimes you get in there. So tell me what brings you in. Well, 37 years ago, I'm like, oh God. No, one time I had an 85-year-old. She was like, well, when I was eight, I broke my arm. <laughs> and and I kid you not, that is the history. Like, that is how thorough. So we went through, she was whatever, 84 minus, from eight years old until now, every, every single oh, no. hangnail. And I couldn't read her. I tried so many times. So how does that, well... If you'll back when I cut that fingernail too short, that's when I started noticing. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. <laughs> like, oh man. I'm going to be here for and, a minute. And it's not that I am in a rush and I don't want to hear. I would love to sit and talk right. about everything. You only have 45 minutes with me. It's right. for your benefit. So. That's so funny. All right. Do you have a patient win? I do. And I'm so excited about this one. It was so good. So um, I had a patient. I want to say I saw her for the first time two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. She was, she came in 30 weeks pregnant. So she's 32 weeks pregnant now, but um, 30 weeks pregnant with her second baby. And with her first child, she did, when she was pregnant, she did have like some sacroiliac joint pain, but like not a ton. And it was really just towards the end of her pregnancy. Well, this pregnancy, it like shot through the roof, like 10 out of 10 pain through the sacroiliac joint. I'm not kidding. She told me she had to crawl on the ground at home just to get around her house at night. That's how bad her pain was. And so just through that first 
first visit, we did a ton of pelvic stabilization, found the areas that were, you know, pretty significant in tenderness and some myofascial tension. We didn't even do internal that first day. I was like, let's just, let's work on some pelvic stabilization first. Did some kinesio tape to that SI joint, came in a week later, zero out of 10 pain, zero pain. She comes in, she's just like, I don't know what you did, but you've got me. Like, I love you. Those <laughs> pregnant so, ladies love the KT tape. Oh my gosh. And it's, and she was just like, no, I have like literally full participation throughout the day. She did not have to crawl around on the ground anymore. Like could do all of her activities, all of her requirements through work at home throughout the day. She was like, it hurts a little bit at night, but nothing like what it was. So that was huge, 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 huge. And it just made me so happy. That's awesome. I love treating pregnant people. If you're pregnant, come say hi, come hang out. Like it's my favorite thing to treat. I have an unconventional patient win. I'm so excited. Let's hear it. Um, and I, I'm going to have to give credit where credit is due. All I, this was Camille's idea, our orthotherapist. So I have a patient who she's been coming for pelvic floor stuff she's my favorite she's actually okay (laughs) she's actually favorite patient number 27 gun to my head if I had to pick a favorite it's this one today sure (laughs) no I I just love them all but yeah I love I love this one okay so we've been seeing her for pelvic floor she's phenomenal with pelvic floor she's doing great with that but she's had trigeminal neuralgia if you don't know what that is go look it up because it's a good it's in the face. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a face nerve problem. It can be very, very painful. It can cause some burning, some electrical jolt in the face. Honestly, I have never in my life treated trigeminal neuralgia. I learned about it in school and then forgot about it. Never Pretty treated much. it. Never treated it. So we're out in the gym today doing pelvic floor things, doing all kinds of fun single leg balance and um, stretching and weight things. And she mentions to me, yeah, since I've had this trigeminal neuralgia, my balance is off, my fate, like it still hurts. And she told me about it at last, like she told me about the trigeminal neuralgia at the last session. And I didn't do anything about it because I didn't, I was like, well, I'm here for your pelvic floor. And honestly, I don't really know what to do, but let's keep an eye on it. Let's see how you are next time. She comes in today, we're out in the gym. So I mentioned to Camille, I'm like, hey, what do you do for trigeminal neuralgia? And have you ever heard it causing balance problems? Because she was talking about balance problems with it too she was like oh yeah she gives me this explanation and she was like if you just want something quick you can needle it and I was like duh I'm the biggest idiot and I was like I'm so sorry so we needled it I kid you not this woman was skipping out of the clinic like she was she's like out she's like let's go back in the gym I want to try all of this she's like oh my gosh oh and she's like touching her face she's like it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt and she just keeps like she's like every time I tapped she's like just like tapping her face over yeah. and over again and she was like it was hurting and now it's not hurting it's not hurting it's not hurting and was is ecstatic and I was like I am so sorry I didn't do this last time <laughs> I'm so sorry and it, but it, Camille was the one who was like Callie just stick some needles in it and yeah like, oh yeah that's amazing I, it just didn't even I don't know why I didn't think of that but yeah and she was like I left, she left in the front office. Ladies were like, she was literally so happy when she left here. So 
I'm kicking myself for not doing it sooner. Hey, but you did it now. Uh, but you, we did it yeah, now. And she's so now. happy. So. And, and you know that it works yeah. too. I think I yeah. think that's you know, some of the sometimes with needles it can be like an instant gratification it can be an instant difference sometimes it does take a couple days and then it's just kind of like okay now I gotta wait until the next time I see this patient and you know to kind of see how things do but when it's that when it's that instant it's like okay yep now we know you just yep we're just gonna needle as tolerated as we need to and and go from there and I had kind of taken a step back from needling because I had really one or two patients who kind of got addicted and yeah. I couldn't get them to do anything, to do anything else. else yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm not even going to bring this up anymore. And I'm, and I never used it as a first line defense ever, but right. as we kind of went through treatment, it was something I would offer. And so I've taken a pretty big step back from that. Cause that kind of made me a little bit nervous, sure. not nervous, but I was just like, I don't like this. And you know, I did all the education in the world and they were just like, no, we're needling every single time. Yeah. I was like, uh. <laughs> great. So I guess it just wasn't on like the front of my mind. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. But it ended up worked great. So, all right. Well, I have no idea what we're going to talk to you guys about next week, but no, it will got, be fun. Yeah, we'll and we out. will have a great time because will that's I? what we do here. And Rachel will have a mountain of research. <laughs> I say, will I have seven pages of notes? I don't know. Stay tuned. I don't know. Maybe she'll be too tired after all her after Arnold, Arnold watching. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Um, PSA for this week. PSA for this week. Work with your doctors. Yes. Work with your doctors. Have a team of doctors, especially with symptoms of PCOS. Like we talked about, there's a lot of heavy things that go along with this condition and you're going to need a lot of, a lot of other doctors on your team. Absolutely. Cardiologists, gynecologists, um, primary care physicians, Yep. All the things, yep. all the things, fertility doctors, everybody. Um, so work with your doctors, have that collaborative team to get you the treatment that you need. Yep. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.